Welcome to the Library Safety and Security Podcast with Dr. Steve Albrecht. I'm the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. My topic for this half hour is talking about talking. I've been thinking after talking with a colleague about how we talk to people who are upset, who are angry about the situation that they're in, and he had some great ideas, and it reminded me of the two books I typically always talk about in my training programs related to difficult or stressful conversations. The first one is Crucial Conversations, and that book came out, I think, about 10 years ago or so, and it was a huge bestseller, red cover, written by a bunch of uh, consultants, uh, Patterson, Grenny, uh, Switzler. Um, and the second book is Verbal Judo by George Thompson. Dr. George Thompson, uh, the late, great Dr. George Thompson, uh, founded the Verbal Judo Institute, which you can find online. So I'm going to be talking about both of those books. <clears throat> so one of the things that we think about in dealing with angry people is how literally important the concept of empathy is. And when you look at Verbal Judo and you look at the Crucial Conversations book, they talk a lot in those, both of those books about the critical value of empathy. It is probably one of the strongest tools we have to demonstrate not only listening capability to people that are upset, but to hear them where they are. Thompson said in the Verbal Judo book something really powerful, which I'm going to start using in my training conversations when we talk about not saying calm down to people that are not calm. One of the reasons that making that makes people so upset when we say calm down is it, it minimizes or it subverts their ability to be mad. Well, some of you say, you don't have the right to be mad, I'm going to say calm down to you. When we think about how saying calm down to somebody just pushes their buttons, even normal people who are just very mild and mild-mannered and don't typically lose their temper would just go off when we say calm down to them. So think about how, how harmful that phrase is completely. And so talking with a colleague, we were looking at this, this concept of, of how we say to somebody, let's talk it out, let's talk it over, let's, let's talk about what I can do for you, let's talk about what, what you need us to do for you as a library. And this idea of, of talking, as opposed to shouting or hitting or anything like that, which is not good, is really a, a way to get people to say what you have to say, even in when they're angry, when they're disjointed, when they're unfocused. What you have to say is important for me to hear. Now, we don't want to be abused by people, don't want to be cursed at, don't want to be threatened, don't want to be harangued by people. And I think we have the right to set boundaries on how people talk. But this conversation of let's talk it over, it's collaborative, it's collegial, it says I hear you, it says I'm, I'm in a position to do something for you. So I think about that as really important. <clears throat> so if we look at empathy as a big driver for our discussion here, the second thing is really patience. And I think one of the reasons we're such poor listeners, and I, I put myself in that category from time to time as well, is we're waiting, as lots of people have defined it, not, not to hear what somebody has to say, but waiting for them to stop talking so we can get our perspective in. If you've ever had a conversation with a friend or a colleague or even a loved one who doesn't let you finish and chops off the end of their of your words before they can get their words in, it, it's, it's challenging. And so not interrupting, especially for people who are upset, really allows you to think of the thing that you want to say to come up with that answer that you're looking for. And, and to come up with a creative solution to what, what's, what's concerning them, but it, it's respectful. The other thing we, we can really demonstrate and, and think about the way human beings communicate is being a lot of it is nonverbal. I mean, there's some statistic that suggests about 60% of the ways we communicate is nonverbal, 30% is verbal, and another 10% is who knows what. 
So nonverbal communication is so much that we do with our eyes and our eyebrows and our face and our mouth and our hands and our arms, even how we stand. And think of the value of standing in a neutral posture, just your hands at your sides or hands in kind of a neutral position around, you know, by your waist, just clasped by your waist. But your hands are, your arms are not crossed. Your hands are not in a defensive posture. You're not rolling your eyes. You're not looking at your watch. You're not arching your eyebrows in that way that suggests, you know, I'm bored, that type of thing. So people read you all the time, especially maybe in the library environment that, that they're watching you before they come and talk to you to see what your affect is, to see how you handle people, how you handle certain situations. So it's important that we're not robots. We have the right to be human beings. But just think of the value of an open posture, open body language. Think of the value of careful eye contact, not looking into their soul eye contact, but careful eye contact, looking at them in a, in a respectful way. Um, think about the value of, of this sense of, of silent waiting, of, of letting them kind of empty this sort of venting, you know, kind of balloon that they have full of this anger and, and energy about a certain situation. And, you know, in communications and discussions, we say to ourselves, what's the big deal? What are they so upset about? What, what, this is not a big deal or it's something I handle all the time every day, every shift as a library employee, and it's not that big of a deal, but for them it's huge. So go back to the idea of perspective. And, and you say to yourself, well, they're coming in and they need to get some help with a resume or they need to help get some help getting online to fill out a job application. I can do that. I do that with people all the time. For you, just another transaction, just another thing that you do as part of the service, service work that you do. For them... It's life or death. For them, it's their job or their future. We look at things happening in 2020 in the, in the pandemic, and people are out of work, and they say, you know, I, I was laid off from a job where, I, you know, I, I worked at for decades. I've never had to fill out a job application online. I've never had to create a resume. I don't know how to create a resume. I don't know how to use the word processing software to do that. They come into the library, they could be pretty stressed. For you, it might be just another service transaction. For them, it's, again, life or death. It's, it's their whole world. So I think a lot of times in, in our communications perspective of what, what, what we see from them and what problems that they're trying to, trying to solve is really critical. One of the things I, I've seen when dealing with angry people is sometimes, let's say they want to speak to, a, to your boss or the library director if you're not the library director, and I, sometimes you can say, let's set an appointment. Let, can, can you come back tomorrow? Can you come back tomorrow at opening time? Uh, the library director is busy or my supervisor is busy for the rest of the day. Can you come back tomorrow? One of the reasons we do that is, A, maybe the person doesn't show up again the next day to keep the appointment, but we make the appointment anyway on their behalf. And, B, sometimes the passage of time really does a lot towards taking the sting or the edge off what they were so angry about. If you're dealing with somebody who seems really irrational, dealing with somebody who seems almost on the point of, of violence, dealing with somebody who's so furious if you turn that person over to your supervisor, you turn that person over to your director, it, it's just going to get worse or they're, they're going to take the brunt of the same thing that you just took. <clears throat> if you have the ability to sort of read the situation and say, you know, this is probably something that would do better if they set an appointment and came back and met my boss or my director tomorrow, let me see if I can do that. Lots of times what we discover is people go home and forget about it or people go home and realize that they were angry over nothing or... If they come back after the passage of 12 hours or 24 hours or whatever it happens to be, they have a tendency to be much more in control of their emotions and the anger and the intensity and the seriousness of the situation has ebbed to the point where they can actually be reasonable in the conversations. So think about the value of setting appointments. 
I've uh, been trained uh, by Gavin DeBecker, who wrote a really cool book about intuition called The Gift of Fear. And one of the things DeBecker talks about, and he's a security guard to Oprah and Jeff Bezos and all those folks, is sometimes you will come across people who are very angry and they've collected some writings or some type of materials or a package or something that they want to give to your boss or to the library director. This person may have spent hours or days collecting a bunch of articles or research or something that they wrote themselves and printed out, and it could be as thick as a phone book. And they say, I want you to give this to your boss, or if your library is next door to the mayor's office or city council or a county supervisor's building, I want you to give this to this elected official who they name. And the reason they want you to have it to give to the director or to an elected official or something like that is they were not probably successful getting it to that person directly, so they want you to do it. And sometimes we can get in a big confrontation with them saying, we don't accept these things, and you need to take that away, and my boss is too busy. You don't need to do all that. Just say the same thing every time. I'll see that it gets delivered to the right person. I'll see that it gets delivered to the right person. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to give it to your boss. doesn't mean that you're not going to screen it and look at it before you give it to the elected official or you're the mayor. But you can say to this person, I'll see that it gets to the right person. I'll see that it gets delivered to the right person. So we're not over-promising, but we're taking custody or ownership of their materials in such a way that at least you can say, <clears throat> I'm going to make sure we look at this before we give it to the mayor or my boss, but we don't turn the person away to make them even angrier because then what they start doing is making more copies of the things, start mailing things, et cetera, et cetera. So just say, I'll see that it gets delivered to the right person. I'll see that this gets, gets delivered to somebody who can look at it. Something like that that at least checks that box for that person inside their head that what they created and gave to you, their, their special project is going to be um, taken care of. So I look at the Crucial Conversations book, and there's a really good video on YouTube uh, done by one of the authors, Terry McMillan. If you have a chance, look for it. I think it's about 18 minutes, 14 to 18 minutes long. He's wearing a, a black suit. He has kind of a green shirt underneath. If you see that, that combination, he's standing in front of a group talking. Um, it's really a good introduction to the Crucial Conversations concept, which these consultants came up with. And what they said was 80% of the time we have routine, normal conversations with people at work, people in our family life, people at home, people that, that we encounter. 80% routine, normal, no problem. We do fine at them. 20% of the conversations they've said in the Crucial Conversations book, we blow it. We get angry. Um, we argue with people. We lose control. We have uh, emotional issues. We get frustrated. We get anxious. We get fearful. Somehow the conversation does not go well as the other 80%. And they define a crucial conversation, if you know the book, the, these three concepts. One is the stakes are high. The other, it's an emotional issue. And third, that there are lots of options as to what to do. If you look at conversations with your kids or your spouse or partner or your parents or your boss, <clears throat> some of these conversations can be crucial. It depends on your livelihood. It depends on your relationship. It affects things that are going on in your personal and professional life really at a serious level. The stakes are high for you if it's a work conversation, perhaps. The stakes are high for you if it's a relationship conversation with your kids or spouse or partner or parents. Um, the emotions run strongly. Um, I do a lot of employee coaching uh, from, from frontline employees all the way up to senior executives. And many times by the time they get to me in the conversation, they're in tears. They're frustrated, male and female. They're in tears. They're angry about the situation they're in in their work. They're angry about their relationships with bosses and coworkers. And so they're very frustrated by the time they come to me and they cry. And in those situations, I'm empathic, and I also understand that it's a crucial conversation. By the time they talk to me, it is a serious conversation, a crucial conversation, and we have to handle those with skill. 
So if we see things as having high stakes and we see things having emotions attached to them, then the third, third possibility in the crucial conversations is also pretty obvious, which is lots of choices and options as to what to do. And this can be a good thing. And I think when you talk to difficult people, angry people, threatening people, really over-the-top people in terms of their behavior, they are not option thinkers in that moment in time in their life. And you have to say to them, hey, there's things we can do for you. There's things I'll be able to do for you. I need you to not shout at me. I can help you. I can't help you if you're shouting at me. I can help you if you're, if you're talking to me in regular tones. There's things I can do for you on your behalf. There's things I'm ready to do for you to help you solve this issue. So when we talk that way, we give people options. When they talk to you about a, a problem from their perspective, which seems insurmountable, there's an issue that seems unfixable. Uh, you know, Think about something that they're working on on one of your computers, and they hit a wrong key, and the screen disappears. And so they were working on a resume or a letter or some sort of important thing, or a kid's homework, and it disappears, and, and it's crushing. And they're furious or, or just crushed or super angry or upset or emotional that their work product just disappeared. And you go, oh, no, we, we've got a backup here, or let me just back up two screens from where you were. Here it is, yeah, type of thing that you can ride to the rescue. So <clears throat> this idea of giving people options, when they're in a crisis, they're angry, they're feeling really emotional about the situation they're in. They don't see around them the possibility of solutions. They don't see what could be done. And you can step in and, in those situations and say, there's lots of things we can do. There's lots of things I can help you with. So be prepared to give them as many options as possible. This kind of crucial conversations sort of third leg of, of high stakes emotional issues and, and lots of options as to what to do is really critical in, in making you help them in situations that they didn't think it was possible to, to rescue. If you look at shame as a driver for people and their behavior, um, if you look at embarrassment as a, a driver for people, th they don't want to be shamed, they don't want to be embarrassed, they don't want to be humiliated in public, even though, and it's counterintuitive, sometimes they engage in those behaviors and it draws attention to themselves, even though that's not what they want, I think it's really important to recognize that people that you talk to may be anxious, they may have really strong anxiety or frustration or even rage about certain situations, and you recognize those emotions when you see them. When you see somebody who is so angry that they can't talk, you see somebody who's so angry that they talk through their teeth, you see somebody who's so angry that their fists are clenched and their, their face is red and, they're, and they're, they're just basically holding themselves in, you have to recognize those warning signs. And sometimes I, I see situations where someone will say, is that, is that person mad at me? And the answer is yes. And they've missed some of the body language, the obvious body language signs that are there. So we look at ways that don't trigger people in terms of shame. We look at ways that don't trigger patrons in terms of embarrassment. And I'm always a big believer in, in finding ways to have careful, quiet, off-to-the-side conversations with patrons about certain things instead of having them in front of peers or kids or spouse or partner or other employees or other strangers around them where they could get embarrassed and, and really magnifies the intensity of the situation. So think about what you can do to give people sort of a sense of hope that you're paying attention to the emotionality of the issue even if they aren't and they're out of control and you can give them options as to what to do and you do it in a way which is which is sensitive to the fact that they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their peers or anybody else around them. Let's talk about the value of humor in certain situations that it can be high stress communication situations. You're not doing a stand-up comedy routine and I get it and sometimes jokes can be inappropriate and wrong for the seriousness of the situation. You've seen people make dumb jokes in serious meetings and things like that and really throw people off track. But what I'm talking about sometimes is self-deprecating humor. 
Um, somebody comes in and they're really mad about having to wear a mask during the COVID situation. You go, wow, that's a really cool mask. It represents their favorite sports team or something that has some design on it that you like. And you go, you know, I tried to make one of those myself and it turned out to be a big mess. And again, it's self-deprecating. It's a lighter touch. It, it, it humanizes you. It, it gives them a sense that you're a human being struggling with the same issues that we're all struggling with. So I'm a big believer in, in a lighter touch, a little bit of self-deprecating humor, never aimed at them or anybody else, but always just at yourself, which, which sort of puts them on a, an even keel that says, I'm not here to put you down. I'm, I'm facing the same issues that you do, and we're all in this together. I'm thinking a little bit about what we just talked about, about angry people and setting an appointment with, with your boss or the director or, or another supervisor. One of the things that I've seen supervisors do in the library environment, especially the director level and assistant director, things like that, is that whenever they deal with somebody who's angry, they always give them their business card and say, you know, my number's on here. If you think of something else besides what we've talked about, I'm, I'm ready to hear it. Or you want to send me an email, I'm ready to hear it. Now, you can certainly encourage people to scream and yell at you over the, their, your voice message or send you a thousand emails. But what else it does is it says, I'm willing to continue this conversation if it's important to you, and obviously it is important to you. And I'm willing to put myself on the line in terms of giving you my contact information so that you can reach out to me if you need to. Now, the good news is, like the setting of the appointment, most people throw away the card or forget about it. Or if they do keep the card, they look at it, they're in a better control, they're in a better sort of frame of mind if they do decide to reach out again. There may be a small number of people who abuse the privilege, but don't, don't forget that giving out your card demonstrates empathy. It also says, hey, I'm a professional person. This is how we do business. I'm willing to put my communication um, tools, you know, email, voicemail, phone conversation, cell phone even, if it's on your card, on the line so that you can continue this conversation because I care about what you're talking about. And it's, it's, a, it's a real driver for empathy if you have the courage to do that as a supervisor with your business card information. One of the things George Thompson talks about in the Verbal Judo book is the power and the value of paraphrasing. And one of the strongest statements that you can say to somebody of a paraphrasing perspective and an empathy building perspective is, let, let me be sure I heard you. Let me be sure um, I got what you were saying. Let me, let me just go back to what I thought I heard you say. Those statements are so powerful in terms of the empathy building. And also, when you have paraphrased correctly, it says to the person, and whether they recognize it, at least they recognize it intuitively, is, I was heard. Somebody heard me, and they're saying what I just said in ways that proved to me that I was heard. One of the conversational habits I think we all need to break, and it's easy to see why we do it. It's, it's, it's kind of a convenience thing. But it really puts people on, on notice that you disagree with them when we use the phrase, yes, but. Someone says to you, I agree with this and I agree with that, but what you just said is they're minimizing that. So you say, I like apple pie for Thanksgiving. And they say, I do too, but I'd rather have cherry. So what they're doing is they're minimizing the things that you just said. So anything that comes before the but gets crossed out. It's a simple semantic shift to say, and I agree with what you said, and I have a perspective that suggests this. I hear what you're saying, and I'd like to talk about this other point here. I hear what you're saying, and my point of view is around this issue. Instead of saying the but, which tends to minimize and, and cross out anything that came before. So whenever says someone says, I hate to disagree with you, but 
you know the next thing out of their mouth is they're going to disagree with you. There's a very small semantic shift, but it's a powerful one between but and and. And I try to use and as much as I can in conversation. Kind of related to that, when we think about the power of words, is also the power of the pause, the power of silence. One of my worst conversational habits is I will chop off the end of somebody's words when I get excited about what they're talking about, which when I'm talking to friends and colleagues, we have spirited discussions about things. I can chop off the end of their words, the last couple things they say, when I want to get my own point of view in there. What I'm trying to teach myself and what I think is a powerful communication tool is to wait that beat, that, that one second, that span of time between when they stop talking and when you start yourself. And if you've tried it, and you're like me, it's really hard to do. You have to remind yourself. I actually put post-it notes around my computer to say, pause, wait, beat. means give yourself one second, little break time, before and when they stop talking, when you start talking. It's easy to get excited about stuff, and you can't always anticipate that other people or expect other people are going to do it as a habit themselves, but you can do it. When you're talking to somebody who's upset or emotional about an issue, and they finish their conversation, and before you interrupt and chop off the end of their words, just wait a second. Now, sometimes they may keep going if they don't hear from you, so you have to do it with skill. You don't want them to ramble on for an hour and not be able to get your perspective in, but, and I should have said and, think about how you can use this as a way to simply slow things down a little bit, because a, a one second time, a couple of seconds time is a million years in brain processing time. It gives you time to think, and it, it demonstrates better listening skills than perhaps the other person have, that's okay, but it demonstrates the listening skills that you say, I will respect and appreciate your point of view all the way through that you say it, all the way through that you're going to have your thoughts before I say my own perspective. Besides his constant discussion of the value of empathy in George Thompson's Verbal Judo book, one of the things he said was, instead of saying calm down, say, it's going to be all right. I'm working on it. Let's figure out what to do. I hear what you're saying. It's going to be okay. I've got it. You told me what I need to work on. You told me what I need to do. I'm going to do that on your behalf. I'm going to do that for you. I think it's pretty powerful. The other part he discussed is the value of sort of a formal discussion process with people sometimes when you're talking to strangers. So somebody comes into the library and they're, they're shouting at one of your coworkers or you're a supervisor and they're shouting at one of your coworkers about something. You come over and the first thing you do is say, um, good afternoon, sir. Second thing is you identify yourself. Hi, I'm Steve from the library. I'm the assistant manager or the children's librarian or whatever your title happens to be. The reason I came over was it looks like you might need some help that I may be able to provide for you. Or it looks like there's some things here that, that I may be able to do for you that, that um, once you tell me what you need or what you tell me what you're looking to do, we, my colleague and I, or I may be able to help you. So think about the structure. The first thing you do is come over and greet this person. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. The second thing is you've identified yourself as having a title. And it's not a superiority thing. It's just it says, I want you to see me as a professional in this library environment here. Here's what I do here. The third thing is you said the reason that you came over. And the reason that you really came over was to help and support your colleague. But you're saying to this person, I'm not going to allow this conversation to escalate. I'm not going to allow you to browbeat or abuse my, my coworker or my employee. I'm coming over here to support. So one of the things that's kind of connected to that is you can ask a question that sort of asks them to justify their behavior. What's making you so upset? 
Um, did we do something that made you angry? Um, did you have a problem with somebody else that, that got you? Because you seem upset to me. Is there something that, that we did or something happened that, that made you upset? It asked them to justify their behavior. Now, sometimes they'll justify their behavior by saying, that's right, and, and go off on a tangent. But sometimes what you can do in those situations, at least plant the seed that says, your behavior is inappropriate here. You're being out of control. And, and when they have to sort of explain it, they realize it's not that big of a deal, and maybe they kind of overstepped their social boundaries. From that point, you can request their cooperation. Could I ask you to come with me over to here? Could I ask you to step over to the desk with me? Could you come with me over to this computer terminal while I take a quick look? Could I ask you to wait right here at this chair and, and just grab a quick seat here until I come back from the back office? Could you do that for me? You request their cooperation. Then you can do what you need to do to solve the issue or to get the information that you got, and then you come by and clarify. Okay, um, were you looking for this? Were you looking for that? Is this the answer that you need? Is this the documentation material, book, website? Is this what you need? And if that solves the problem, then, then thank them for their patience. And you say, they weren't very patient. They were obnoxious. They were rude. They were abrupt. Okay. You thank them for their patience. Say, thanks for coming in. Thanks for being patient. We're trying to role play a little bit. We're trying to demonstrate professional communication tools to people that sometimes don't see that that's what they're all about. And that's what they need to, to put into their own set of tools. But we sometimes use the concept of thanking people for coming in and not being abusive and not, not being a jerk or obnoxious. But we try to say this is what appropriate professional people do in this environment. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for your cooperation. Those things are good closure statements to get this person on their way. So think of the, the, the process of these steps. There's a greeting. You identify yourself based on your name and your title. You give the reason why you came over. You ask this person to justify their behavior. You request their cooperation. You clarify what you, what you have done for them, whether that was the right thing or you still need to do a little bit more work. And then you close the conversation with thanks. Thompson said in the Verbal Judo book, difficult people are as eager to argue with you as nice people are to cooperate with you. That's a pretty interesting statement, isn't it? Difficult people are as eager to argue with you as nice people are to cooperate with you. When I first started dealing with angry or threatening people as part of my work and in my career, what I figured out there was three types of folks in the world. There are yes people, there are maybe people, and there are no people. Yes people are cooperative. You say, could I ask you to wait over there? And they say, okay, and they do it. Maybe people say, maybe I will, maybe I won't. What's in it for me? They're listening to radio station WIIFM. What's in it for me? So you need to explain, I need to step in the back. I need to go pull your information. I need to take a quick look at the computer. It's going to take about five minutes. Could I ask you to wait over here? They'll probably cooperate. The third person and the most difficult group of all is the no folks. No matter what you tell them, they're not going to do it. They're not going to cooperate. Could I ask you to wait over there? I'm not doing that. I'm going to come back later. So, so you have to sometimes make a pretty quick assessment. Are you dealing with a yes person, a maybe person, or a no pe person? It's difficult to deal with the no people, but here's the problem. Sometimes we can turn yes people and maybe people into no people based on how we treat them, based on how we talk to them, based on how we communicate with them. That's why we've been talking about these tools. The last tool before we wrap up is one that I think about as very useful for your toolkit as well, which is called forced yes questions. Forced yes questions are questions that the person has to answer yes or they look ridiculous. So a forced yes question might be, 
Uh, you, you still want to be able to use the library, right? And the answer is yes, I still want to be able to use the library. Okay, um, I have to ask you not to come in with a shopping cart or not to ask you to come in uh, screaming at people or whatever it happens to be that they're doing that's against our policies or not good for our code of conduct. Um, you know, if you were talking to a, a problematic student, you say, I, I know you don't want me to call your parents, right? You, we want to be able to solve this here so that, that you can continue to use the library. Those are forced yes questions. A forced yes question forces the person to see the wisdom of complying. A forced yes question f forces the person to see that you're trying to get them to agree to a pattern of behavior that is successful for everybody. So you, you still want to be able to use the library, right, sir? And that, that's a forced yes question that, that has this person saying, well, yes, I do. And if I answer no, then I've, I've, got, I've just kicked myself out of the library on my own, my own way. So I like forced yes questions sometimes for those situations where we're trying to make an obvious point to this person, but we also want them to hear it from our perspective and to have them answer yes, that they do want to comply, yes, that they do still want to use our services. And so that's where we can kind of get them on the road to a conversation that, that tends to be more towards positive success at the end. So my thanks to the producer of the Library Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargaden. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Safety and Security Podcast.